Okay, please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. We'll read the first seven verses. And then we'll, our sermon text will be Psalm 48. Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Amen. It's no accident that John sees these 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now we're going to read a psalm concerning Mount Zion in its Old Covenant context. Psalm 48. Psalm 48, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things I like about this particular church building is the steeple out front, or not steeple, but... um, I guess the bell tower. Uh, a lot of church steeples um, that you'll see come to a point at the top, right? And so the idea is that the steeple is pointing us up towards heaven. 
And that's very appropriate. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, churches have been built that way for a long time. It's often very beautiful. But if you look at the bell tower here, um, you'll notice that it doesn't have a spire uh, pointing up at the sky. Um, instead, it's much more like a battlement, um, that kind of square castle-like design. Um, and church buildings designed that way are evoking a different aspect of what the church is. It's a fortress. It's a citadel for the truth and also for the people of God. Now, we all know that the church is not the building, right? The church is the people. Um, and buildings, buildings, though, express something about what we believe is going on inside. But in the Old Covenant... Um, it wasn't quite that clear-cut, that distinction. Because, um, I mean, even then, the ultimate reality, spiritually, was the same. Uh, it was about God's relationship with his people. That's what the covenant was about, God's relationship with his people. The people were the ultimate concern. But um, in, in Old Testament times, in the Promised Land, uh, Israel's covenant life with God actually was tied quite closely to a particular place, even to a particular building, in a sense that, it, that it's not anymore now in Christ. Uh, and so as we approach Psalm 48 tonight, we want to try to see Jerusalem, see the city of Jerusalem through the eyes of an Israelite, of an Old Testament Israelite, in all of its very rich, we might even say sacramental significance, for the Old Testament believers who worshipped there and who looked to that city for leadership and for protection through the king, as well as for atonement and forgiveness through the temple and for communion with God. And so we're going to look at this psalm in three parts tonight. First, what cities say, verses 1 through 3. Second, what the kings saw, verses Four to eight, and then third, what faith does, verses nine to fourteen. So, what cities say, what the kings saw, and what faith does. First, what cities say. We've already talked a little bit about what architecture has the power to say to communicate with church architecture. Uh, let's think more broadly, though, about um, about cities and what cities say. Every city, I think, says something about the people who lived there, or at least about the people who built it. Um, a city's layout, its roads, its parks, uh, its buildings, they all reflect that city's history, how it, how it grew and changed organically over time. Uh, they also reflect that city's priorities, what people in that city think uh, is important Think about um, New York City, for example. Take a, just a classic example. What do the architecture and the layout and the various features of New York City say about New Yorkers, about the people who constructed New York, about the powerful people there, about American culture in general? What do they say about... What, what does the city say about what um, people think about community, what people think about money, what people think about the arts, and so on and so forth. You can see where this goes. What does this city say? 
Now, if you were to ask that question about ancient Jerusalem at the height of its glory, I think the best answer would be found in Psalm 48, verse 1. What did Jerusalem say? What's the message the city of Jerusalem was to convey to those living there or visiting there? Jerusalem says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That is the message that Jerusalem delivers to anyone approaching it. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. You've heard of the New England Puritans' desire to be, as as John Winthrop put it, a city on a hill. And uh, Jerusalem literally was a city upon a hill. And that's why verse 2 continues, beautiful in elevation. Beautiful in elevation. It was higher in altitude, physically higher in altitude than the area around it. And so you'd look up to Jerusalem and you would see uh, its beauty and the glory of its walls. And then inside the walls, there would be the royal palace and crowning all of it on Mount Zion would be the temple of the Lord. Next, you see it described as the joy of all the earth, the crown jewel of the world is kind of what it's saying. They're the greatest of all cities. And why is that? Well, it's because the Lord's name dwelt there. His glory, his favor rested upon it in a way that was completely unlike any other city. Um, It's true that it would not have been the biggest or the grandest city by earthly measures. If you went to Nineveh or Babylon or Memphis down in Egypt, uh, not Memphis, Tennessee, Memphis in Egypt, um, all, all, any of those cities would have dwarfed Jerusalem by comparison just in terms of sheer size and uh, scope and uh, depending on what, part, what time in their history may be wealth and outward glory. But what sets Jerusalem apart is that it is the Lord's city, God's own city. It is the one place out of all of his creation. It's the one place on earth where the Lord chose to reveal himself, to meet there. And they're alone in the closest kind of communion and fellowship and mercy with the people that he had loved and chosen out of all of the other nations. You may wonder when it says uh, in the far north, in what sense is Jerusalem in the far north? It's not at the North Pole. Um, and, and even you think, well, it's, isn't it in the southernmost tribe? Judah's the southernmost tribe. Jerusalem's the city of, of Judah. Well, yes, but on the other hand, um, if you look on a map of the, the uh, layout of the tribes and their inheritance, Jerusalem is in the far north of the territory of Judah. It's right there on the northern border with Benjamin. Um, uh, and, and that may be the simplest explanation for why it refers to the far north here. There's some others that commentators will get into, but I, I think that may be the simplest one. Um, what's much, much more important than the geographical location of Mount Zion is who lives and reigns there. That's the next line. It says it's the city of the great king. And you can probably see at once the uh, rich kind of double meaning there. Who is the great king who lives in Jerusalem? Well, there's the great king of Israel, or at least later of the king of Judah, the sons of David, reigning as the God-ordained covenantal monarch. So it's the city of the great king in that sense. But who else reigns in Zion? who last time, just in the previous psalm, did we see being enthroned on the Temple Mount. As the ark, uh, remember that imagery of the ark being carried in from 2 Samuel with David 
humbling himself before God by dancing in front of it. So the greatest king, the king of kings, is the Lord. Jerusalem is his city. It's the city of that great king. It's God's own city. Again, um, I love the poetic turn in verse 3. It's very, it's kind of intricate, and you have to read it a couple of times to see what's going on here. Um, besides being the political capital and the center of, of kingly authority, political authority um, for Israel, Jerusalem was also a military fortress, too. It was very defensible because of its elevation. Uh, And at its height, it would have had strong fortifications, great walls, towers, these massive gates, very difficult to assault, um, trying to keep an enemy out. And so from a purely strategic point of view, Jerusalem would have been an imposing stronghold, very threatening to any potential enemies uh, and a haven for any Israelites who wanted to take refuge there from their enemies. You went, if you got into Jerusalem, you would be safe for most of Israel's history uh, until the very end when God's judgment came. But, um, but remember, what does Jerusalem say? What does this city say? What is its message? What truth does it convey to the world? Well, it's the greatness of God from verse 1. And so listen again to what verse 3 says compared to that. Within her citadels, that that massive, powerful, strategic stronghold, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So yes, Jerusalem is a citadel. Jerusalem is a fortress. But it's not Israel's ultimate fortress. It's not the king's first line of defense And it is not the king's last line of defense either. Ultimately, Israel's fortress is not a city or a wall. In fact, it's not a what at all. It is a who. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. It is he who is our fortress. But you see, God has designed and appointed Jerusalem to point Israel to that reality. He has put it on display, embodied it in in this particular city to show Israel something about what he is like. Um, of, Of course, as soon as the Israelites start trusting in Jerusalem's walls, trusting in Jerusalem's military strength instead of trusting in God, when they substitute the picture for the real thing, Uh, the whole picture breaks down. They've missed the point. Everything starts to go wrong, and you see that happening in Israel's history. But uh, what they're uh, supposed to do is they're supposed to see Jerusalem revealing to them something about God. And when they see Jerusalem's magnificence, they're to see through it to God's magnificence. And when they see Jerusalem's strength to protect them, they're to see through it God's strength to protect them. Jerusalem, you could say, was a revelational place. A revelational place. It was to teach, it was to show Israel and the world something about God. The city of Jerusalem today is very different The city of Jerusalem today says something very different. 
You remember in the Gospels how Jesus' disciples want to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And you saw some of them on the Rafe Anderlon video in Sunday school this morning. But, but Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And thrown down they were. Jerusalem was never the end. It was never the be-all and end-all for God's plan. It pointed beyond itself to a future reality, not a physical location, but a spiritual uh, reality, which the New Testament calls the church. Uh, That's why Hebrews 12 says, it's very striking every time you read it, that we haven't come together in Christ to any place that you can touch. God's relationship with the church is not bound to one particular holy place on earth anymore. Instead, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he goes on, and it's it's quite magnificent the way he describes that spiritual city, that spiritual place of worship that we've come to in Christ. Um, In other words, if you're in Christ, if you are part of Christ's church, then you are part of what Psalm 48 is describing. You are there. You You are here. Right here in this worship service, we are right now gathered at Mount Zion, the city of the great king in the presence of God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3 says, you are God's temple. God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God God the Holy Spirit dwells here among us. This is the city of the great king. And so we could ask a couple of questions. We could ask, what does this city say about God? What does the church reveal about the Lord? And we could barely scratch the surface. You can think of all kinds of things. I encourage you to think about this on your own. It reveals to us his love in the self-giving sacrifice of Christ, that Christ would pay so high a price to, purif- to win and cleanse and purify such a bride reveals to us God's power that he has been able to preserve, protect the church down through the ages with all of the deadly threats that have assaulted it through the centuries. Reveals to us his wisdom, reveals to us his patience when you consider all the ways that the church has erred and gone astray during those couple of thousand years. But not just speaking of the church in general. I think there's an application for us if we ask the question... What does, what does this city say? Thinking of the church local, the church in its local expression. I think when, when people look at the church, and to make it more personal, when people look at resurrection, are we conveying what Mount Zion is supposed to say to the world? Is the message that this city proclaims, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised? In this citadel, God intends to make himself known as a fortress. That a mighty fortress is our God. As he was then, so he is today for the church and for this church, Resurrection OPC. One of the ways that he reveals his character to the world is through the church. We need to understand that that's a great privilege, but it is also a great responsibility. When people look at us, what are they going to conclude about God? 
People are going to learn what God is like by looking at his people, by looking at his children. That's a good question we ought to be asking ourselves. We consider and evaluate our life as a church and as individuals in it. But we need to keep moving through this psalm. So we're coming now to um, verse 4. And the second point, what the kings saw. What the kings saw. Last time I mentioned at the end of Psalm 47 that uh, when the princes of the peoples gather in the Bible, um, they're usually up to no good, right? They're usually gathering to go against Israel, go to war against Israel. They're, um, in Psalm 47, uh, it was unusual. It was an irony, right? Because they're assembling as part of the covenant community. It's uh, an amazing thought. Um, here, in Psalm 48, it's the more usual imagery. Uh, for behold, the kings assembled, they came on together, they are going to try to attack Jerusalem. Uh, kind of getting back to, back to what's usual. Um, but it says, as soon as they saw it, what happened? It says they were astounded, they were in panic, and they took to flight. I, I love something Spurgeon says here, thinking of Julius Caesar's Veni Vidi Vici. But he says, they came, they saw, but they did not conquer. Uh, I love that. Trembling took hold of their anguish as of a woman in labor. And I don't need to explain to you that that urgency, that overwhelming compulsion uh, conveyed by that image of of childbirth as it takes over their whole being with um, the being overwhelmed by the might of Jerusalem with God within her. That's what it's like, childbirth. That's what it's like for them to approach Jerusalem and to perceive their um, not just the city walls, but the God within those walls, who has made himself known there as a fortress for his people. Uh, verse 7 speaks of God shattering the ships of Tarshish. And there's, uh, there's one instance in the Old Testament of that literally happening. Uh, in First, uh, sorry, First Kings 22, Second Chronicles 20, uh, when King Jehoshaphat allied with the wicked king Ahaziah to build ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold. Uh, they did not go, for the ships were wrecked, it says. Um, Jehoshaphat was one of those kind of mostly good kings of Judah that you find in Judah's history. Uh, but that particular instant near the end of, of the record of his reign shows what happens when God's people try to trust something else, something other than the Lord for their security and for their prosperity. So he's trying to accumulate gold for himself, contrary uh, to the instructions in Deuteronomy for the king, Israel's kings. Uh, verse 8 It's another interesting poetic turn of phrase. Um, The point here is that God's greatness and his protection, uh, his defeat of Israel's enemies, is not just an artifact of the past. Something like, oh, we remember the Exodus happened way back then. Uh, Something that Israelite children read about in their history books. No, it's, it's so much more than that for Israel. Now, it is a present and living reality. As we have heard, past, so we have seen. They've seen it for themselves in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We believe that God will establish it forever, not only because we've heard about what God did back then, but because we've experienced what God is doing right now among us. And that's, uh, for us, that's what we should be looking for in the church's life, in our families. In our own personal walk with Christ, we should be looking for God's power, his protection, his comfort, his transforming strength, because those are not things that you just read about as though they just happen to other people, but not to me. 
Those are things for you now in your regular life. God is working in the here and now, not just in the there and then that we read about. Okay? We, we talked this morning about praying expectantly, as though we actually expected God to do something in response to our prayers. It's so important. And also, when he answers us, it's so important that we acknowledge that it's the Lord who has done this. Uh, there's a Calvin's Institute's quote that I love where he, he says, We must learn to expect and ask all things from God and thankfully ascribe to God whatever we receive. So whether there's something you need or something you're thankful for, uh, you're, you're glad that you have, either way, you've got to see everything you need. You've got to look to God for those things. And whatever you have, you ought to be ascribing it to God, that it, recognizing that it is from him that it came. I think that's really helpful. Expect everything from God. Ascribe everything to God. Put it in kind of a modern, pithy way. When you think about your life that way, you'll be able to say with the psalmist that God's mighty work isn't just something I've heard about in other people's lives. As we have heard, so we have seen. We have to ask, is that what we're expecting in the church's life? When, when we pray, for example, for opportunities to share the gospel, then do we actually open our eyes and look for those opportunities that the Lord is putting in our way? Or do we think, oh, that's something other people do? No, you have opportunities to do this. When we pray for people to come to faith in Christ, do we eagerly watch to see that happening? Or, um, kind of more inwardly, when we're struggling with sin and we pray for God to lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, do we expect him really to give us the strength to change, to grow, to obey? Or are we just kind of content with our old patterns because we think that it can never be any different? As we have heard, what's happened to other people can also be true for us. As we have heard, so we have seen. And that is the confession of a living faith, a faith that is experiencing a living, active communion with God now in the living present, and not just talk, we're not just talking about it as something um, out there that we've never entered into ourselves. And I'd invite you that if you have not yourself entered into that living experience at all of knowing and trusting God. Realize that it's not just something for other people. It is something for you to seek him now, to lay hold of Christ now, that that gift of a living relationship with him that he's holding out to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, And you can expect him to answer. You can expect him to receive you and never to let you go. And this will be true for you, that as you have heard, so now you will have seen for yourself firsthand. We've come now to the last section of the psalm, verses 9 to 14, which we're calling, What Faith Does. That kind of living faith that's experiencing now God's presence and power. What is it like? What does it do? If you have the paper bulletin, you can see I've listed five things that faith does. Faith reflects, rejoices, reviews, relays, and relies. So first it reflects. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. A living faith is one that intentionally makes a practice of thinking about what God is like and what God has done. If we don't think on purpose, other people will do our thinking for us. And there are plenty of people and uh, teachers and companies out there who are 
very happy to fill up your mind uh, to the limit with all kinds of things, to do your thinking for you. It takes intentionality and care to make a practice of thinking about God's character, God's actions. And, of course, that's one of the reasons for corporate worship uh, and the Lord's Day. Uh, it's, it says we've, we've done this thinking, they say, in the midst of your temple. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. I love the description uh, that the search committee gave me when I was candidating here at Resurrection of, of, of Resurrection's approach to worship. That here in corporate worship, they said, we step out of the carnival of contemporary life and into the theater of the eternal. Would you love that? That's what worship is about. Living faith then reflects on God and his steadfast love for us. Second, faith rejoices. And we have another of these as this, so that statements, like back in verse 8. This time it's, uh, oh, let's see. Um, This time it's, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the end of the earth. Um, We pray in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. And when we say that, what we're doing is we're desiring God's name to be known and therefore worshipped, not just here where we are, but everywhere throughout the world. Everywhere God's name goes, his praise goes, and his name has gone everywhere. That's the, the goal, really, of uh, foreign missions, um, is for God's worship to increase in other places. And seeing Christ known and worshipped is a reason for the church to rejoice. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And so just as we need to be intentional to think about the things of God, we also need to be intentional to rejoice in the things of God and to do it on purpose, not just to wait for it to be this involuntary overflow when we're in a certain, very particular emotional state. No, we need to actively choose to celebrate the things of God. And again, this starts with corporate worship. Because worship is where we learn to rejoice, where God teaches us through his word, especially through the Psalms themselves. How to rejoice, as we learned this morning in Sunday school, teaching us how to feel that orthopathy, right feeling to go along with our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy, our right believing and our right um, doing, also right feeling. God's word teaches us to rejoice and shows us how. To rejoice. Third, living faith reviews. And I guess I kind of shoehorned that in there with the R-E words. But, but you see what I mean in verse 12 when it says, Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, like looking at Jerusalem from every angle. Some of you probably like using Google Earth where you can navigate through all kinds of uh, landmarks around the world, places and cities, and you can kind of virtually fly around them and look at them just from every angle. You can turn them like a diamond right there before you on the computer. It's amazing um, how much better, actually, to go to all of these wonderful places and just spend time wandering around with your mouth hanging open, looking at how beautiful and impressive they are. Well, just as we need to be intentional to think and to celebrate the things of God, we also need to train ourselves to see, to look, to look at what God is doing in the church. If the church is the new Jerusalem, if we are God's temple... Um, then we should ask ourselves just how much do we know, how much do we care to know about what's going on in the broader church? Uh, For example, do you know who the foreign missionaries are? And do you pray for them? 
Do you care to know what the Lord is doing in other parts of the church and other parts of the country or around the world? I want to encourage you to look around the heavenly Jerusalem, to consider it, to walk, go, number, consider like someone wandering around a beautiful city and touring it and and wanting to know all there is to know and see all there is to see of the glory of God on display in his church. Learn about the church, especially your church, especially the OPC, because the more you know, the more you'll be able to pray. You may be able to find new ways to serve, but most of all, best of all, you'll find new reasons to worship. You'll find new reasons to praise and thank the Lord for what he is doing among his people. The fourth thing is faith relays. Just going quickly, it transmits what it learns to the next generation. They're supposed to study Jerusalem so that they can tell the next generation about it. We want to have a multi-generational outlook on the life of the church. We don't just want to set up the church the way that we like it for ourselves. We want to be preparing the church for future generations, and we want to be preparing future generations for the church. Remember what Paul told Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And what is it that we want those future generations to know? Well, that's the last thing. Faith reflects, rejoices, reviews, relays, and relies. We want them to know that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. What should we be teaching our children? We should be teaching them who God is. We should be teaching them that he is our God in Christ. And we should be teaching them that he will never stop being our God and that we will never stop being his. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that's good news for the church. It's good news for us and it's good news for our children. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has bought and cleansed and rescued the church for himself to be his bride, to be his body, and to be his city, and to be the temple for his spirit. And we ask that you would fit us for those formidable tasks And teach us, Lord, to fulfill those responsibilities you've given us, even as we rejoice in those great privileges. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.